0: Chumba, details. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It's easy to view fringe topics without context. Often it's the sensational aspects of stories, such as fish falling from the skies or mysterious lights or strange creatures lurking in the shadows or mysterious humanoids that capture our imagination as anomalies. But context matters. Without context, it's impossible to see the threads that weave ideas together and form our culture. We're going to continue our coverage of magic in this episode, as we also continue our conversation with John L. Crow about Western esotericism. Back in episode 86, we talked about how theosophy helped foster the myth of Slender Man as a real creature by means of a misunderstanding of the Tibetan concept of tulpas. In this episode, we'll learn more about the history of theosophy, and how it and other esoteric and occult ideas grew in the late 19th century in Europe and America.
1: ...unlike anything we've ever seen before.
0: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. We're on a road that's taking us towards some very interesting concepts and people, among them, Aleister Crowley. I could have just had an episode about Crowley and talked about the legends around him, but I wanted to explain the world he came from and not just give a sensational highlight reel. To that end, we pick up part two of my conversation with religious studies instructor John L. Crow. Some of our listeners wanted to know when we'll be getting back to more cryptids, and I assure you that we have in no way run out of monsters to talk about. And I appreciate your indulging me in these sideline talks about magic. Magic ties into so many monster concepts. I think it's important to know more about how magic, science, and history overlap, but I know it's not everyone's favorite topic. So more straight-up traditional monsters will be coming soon. Stay tuned. But we're also heading for a chat about Aleister Crowley, a man whose influence is not limited to his claims of magical power, but are also important because of who he influenced. More about that later. Monster dog. All right, uh, we're just going to pick up where we left off uh, in part one. So if you've missed part one, I encourage you to listen to that first, although I think this will make sense uh, as it is the way we've broken things out. So uh, I believe when we last talked, we were discussing lightly the... uh, idea of theosophy uh, and how it fit into the context of this sort of late uh, 19th century esotericism and occultism. And I I think those are both terms we have not actually defined yet.
1: Well, the esotericism is for just a simplistic definition is uh, all of the ideas, practices, phenomena that were at one time um, common, which are now seen as um, marginal or disreputable. Um, So, for instance, astrology. This is an esoteric current that goes back to ancient times, but is today seen as more of a a pseudoscience or um, alchemy, magic, Uh, Also, a lot of the ideas coming out of uh, Neoplatonism and uh, notions of natural philosophy. All of those ideas are carried forward in esoteric currents, certain models of the universe, certain models of the human body. These are carried forward in esoteric currents that are then dismissed by mainstream society, which shifts towards other kinds of Ideological bases. It isn't necessarily religious. It isn't necessarily uh, science, although it kind of participates in all of those. And occultism is the modern form of esotericism that is definitely interacting with science, and uh, in many cases using the appearance, the rhetoric, the method of science, but also. Uh, changing its basis on how uh, the universe is seen. So uh, phenomenon can occur. Science can be test things um, beyond the material realm, things like that.
0: It's interesting to me because I, I think some of the questions that are being asked by these groups uh, are, are questions that would have traditionally been asked by, uh, I guess, religious groups. And, and in some sense, I guess these are religious groups. But... Um, if you want to look at, um, uh, I guess, the the way that these groups use ritual and, and magic, um, it, it seems like previously uh, there were times in European history, at least, when asking questions through this methodology would have put you firmly into the world of witchcraft and could have gotten you killed. Uh, mm-hmm. So how does that transition happen that suddenly it becomes... I don't know if it's socially okay. I don't know what the right way to phrase this is. It's, it's legal to ask these questions, but there doesn't seem to be the sort of social repercussions that there would have been in previous centuries.
1: Well, I, th- I think we need to look at a, the transition of how magic moves from a, an elite status, uh, particularly ceremonial magic, which we find in the Golden Dawn and in the OTO, uh, but less so in theosophy. Uh, Theosophy was, for the most part, a theoretical occultism. Uh, There are some esoteric uh, aspects, they have an esoteric section uh, that does do some practice, but their kind of practice, again, is not so much of a ceremonial role, it is uh, more akin to uh, meditation, abstinence from uh, sexuality, vegetarianism, abstinence from... Uh, participation in the use of drugs, alcohol, tobacco, things like that. Whereas in the Golden Dawn, you're actually seeing ceremonies that uh, mimic or are based on even uh, tangentially Freemasonry or a lot of the um, ancient grimoires and uh, that have ritual magic in them, um, the key of Solomon and, and so forth. So uh, anybody... I, I guess you've done some episodes on the grimoire stuff, so we don't really need to go there. I, I would, ref, I guess, refer people to that episode as, and because they're interesting. And, and they really touch on how there's this tradition of textuality that is moving ideas forward or inventing ideas and then couching them in um, ancient language. And these are then adopted and practiced. But that's in the the... 19th century you're not going to get claims of witchcraft there because by this point magical practice of the most mundane kind is so common um, and is literally legal because all the laws of persecuting witches uh have have been taken off the books and those were there because of the joint association between the church and the government uh, at a remember, before you get to the point where you have governments rejecting the authority of the papacy, therefore you have these Protestant um, independent uh, governments, they depended on their legitimacy to be certified by the pope. It comes from God to the pope to the monarch. And so when the church says certain practices are forbidden – the monarch is the one who has the responsibility to enforce that. Once the monarch breaks from the church, then they have the ability to institute their own views. Now, uh, early on, that didn't stop the persecution of witches. In fact, if you look at James, uh, his first big book was about demonology, right? Uh, but later, that it, as the governments become more and more secular, witchcraft persecution becomes less and less. So uh, again, we can point to the Protestant Reformation for being a radical break in this process, uh, and the and the ability for these groups to arise in many cases is because of Protestantism and coming out of Protestantism, secularism.
0: That's very very interesting. I so. So the idea of secularism uh, as relates to these topics, does that give people the sort of social platform that they can examine these things from a neutral perspective? Is that the idea?
1: Right. Or, or looking for an alternative. Once Europe started encountering others through colonialism, they really had what scholars call a crisis of faith prior to the engagement with other cultures. Europe had encountered Islam in the Middle East, had uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims in Europe and encountered the religions of uh, the indigenous religions in Africa. And that was basically the full extent. And so they had a categorization of Christians, Muslims, Jews and heathens. And so everything was in relationship to Christianity. The Jews preceded the Christians, and Jews today misunderstood the message of Jesus. And therefore, if they did, they would convert and be Christians. And then Muhammad. Recognized Jesus as a prophet but failed to recognize him as the son of God and therefore they uh, Muslims are confused and if they understood the true nature of Jesus they would come on board so that kind of lens basically said that the, the monotheistic traditions or the Abrahamic traditions were all related and then you had everything else and they were ignorant others but then through colonialism Europeans encountered China Japan India and other places in Asia that they could not dismiss as ignorant heathens, right? You you can say there's a, a things that you disagree with in in Hinduism, and that it's you know characterized in lots of negative ways, but one thing it's not is uh, simplistic and ignorant. It is a very sophisticated set of notions and ideas and practices about the universe same thing with buddhism same thing with the other indian uh religions and the same thing with the traditions that they encounter in japan in china and other parts of asia they cannot be dismissed as just ignorant heathens and in doing so they were they were really confronted with for instance How did the Buddha give the same kind of moral message that Jesus gave, but preceded the Buddha uh, preceded Jesus by 500 years? How'd that happen? Hmm. And other kinds of things like that. And that really caused them to have a crisis in their their belief in um, the the strict understanding of the Bible and that started them looking for alternative religions. And as soon as they're open to those kinds of alternative religions, then they're open to a, a whole group of other ideas that are out there. And so this is what is the fertile environment in which you start getting the rise of things like spiritualism and theosophy and the the actual practice of magic and uh, occultism.
0: So I, I think as someone coming from a sort of secular background, I, I'm always tempted to look at the rise of these movements from the, the view of who started them and what sort of person were they. But I, I'm not sure that, that that's really the best way. I don't know if you know, if that's a fair way to assess this sort of stuff. But when you're looking at something like theosophy, do you typically start with who was Blavatsky? Or how, how, does that, how do you normally approach this in a classroom perspective?
1: Well, in a in, in classroom, when I'm talking about kind of the occult milieu of the 19th century, we start by looking at what the environment is, because the kinds of organizations and the activities that people do are a reflection of the context in which they're doing them. So you're not seeing today um, the so-called millennials uh, joining organizations And so you're finding a lot of institutions, especially religious institutions, and we talked previously about Freemasonry, uh, the same thing's happening. These institutions are starting to diminish and collapse. So you could focus on the history of, say, um, Presbyterianism or Freemasonry and, and look at the trends within that. But the decline in these organizations isn't just found in Freemasonry or in mainline Protestant churches. It's across the board. So what is it that is going on that is causing the same phenomenon to occur in all of these different places, uh, although in slightly different ways? And we could look at the same thing that's happening at the end of the um, 19th century and say what's going on in uh, England and in Europe and in America that is kind of setting the foundation for the arising of these esoteric groups. Um, Theosophy was the first one, but it certainly wasn't the last, and and it got big. But even at its at its height, uh, worldwide, it was. At about sixty to 70,000 members worldwide. And that's a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. But when we look at some of these megachurches that pull in 50,000 people into stadiums, 60,000 people for just a service, well, then that number starts to, to look pretty small. And yet they were a very influential group of people. Um, so we we need to see what's going on in the water, you might say, um, that's allowing these things to grow. Uh, and one of them is the emergence of science. One is the emergence of uh, doubt in established religious traditions. And another one is uh, romanticism and romantic fiction. And these ideas that are appearing in especially British literature um, of Kind of these mystic figures, and the one that's probably the most influential for the rise of theosophy, the Golden Dawn, and um, subsequent groups is a guy named Edward Bulwer Lytton. Yes, he wrote a book.
0: Yeah, we, we yes. I know him from. Uh, it was a dark and stormy night, right? <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. The 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 purple prose that he writes, right? Uh, and yes, he, he is prolific in his uh, I would say he's kind of the the Dan Brown of uh, the 19th century but his books sold gangbusters and he was prolific because that's how he made his living he was uh, a colleague of Charles Dickens and uh, Dickens promoted his writings and one of the the publishing formats was a serialized novel in which you subscribe to a service and every week you got a chapter. And so that kind of model allowed the writers to be financing the writing of the novel as they're writing it. And so this was very common. And then once it was all done, then they were all bound together, made into a book, and then sold as a book. Uh, This is how Dickens did uh, uh, many of his novels. Uh, He had a service called uh, I think it was All Year Round uh, and Bulwer-Lytton was a participant in that as well as other ones and just the publishing of books. And The one book in particular is called Zanoni that we can really point to and that was influential on people like Blavatsky and um, Mathers who created the Golden Dawn. Uh, In fact, Mathers at one point adopted the name Zanoni. But within Theosophy, we can see the influence on Blavatsky because she appeals to Blavatsky, I mean, appeals to uh, uh, bulwer Lytton, calls him an occultist, says that he's uh, disseminating occult ideas. And in Zanoni, there are these two masters, um, and one is named Zanoni. And this becomes the model in which there's this great brotherhood of uh, secret brotherhood behind the scenes that is shaping in the movement of humanity in a positive f- uh, direction and so we start seeing the ideas of uh, theosophy responding to the scientific naturalism and materialism using romanticism as a notion to uh, claim that there are these guides these what they called the masters or the Mahatmas. Um, And also that there's this ancient wisdom tradition that goes throughout time and is connected to all of these different uh, traditions. And that is this one truth, this, it's called perennialism, this one truth that has traveled throughout time and that they, the masters are teaching the leaders of the theosophical society, what those truths are, Because they're students of the masters, and in turn, they're releasing that information to the public. And so all of this occult knowledge is now being revealed. How? In books and in journals. And this is the last thing that we need to see as a uh, disseminator, is the influence again of Protestantism in the textuality of Northern Europe, it was a very bookish literature culture, and theosophists, spiritualists, they took advantage of it. And so you'll see coming out of this, the 1950s and 60s, newspapers, journals, and books are everywhere, and they're proclaiming these ideas. And this is what attracts a lot of people, and so then they all start becoming interested in this tradition um, and getting Lessons, and they want to learn to do practical magic. They you, want you, I learn. think you.
0: I yes. may have misheard you. You. You've been the 1850s and 60s, right?
1: Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say 19? I, yeah, I yeah, just just yeah, making 18... sure
0: we're talking about the same thing. Okay, yep. cool. Sorry.
1: So, yep. The 1850s going forward, it, it's newspapers is uh, the predominant format in spiritualism, theosophy, appealing more to a middle class and wanting to appear more literary, adopts a journal format.
0: Interesting. So. Uh, but Bulwer-Lytton, he, he's not actually in these groups. He's just writing fiction in, in Blavatsky. We haven't really even talked about who she is exactly. So she's a, a Russian immigrant, right?
1: Yeah. Let me ask her about Bulwer-Lytton yeah, and get yeah. right to Blavatsky. Bulwer-Lytton was not in these groups. Uh, he was not an occultist. He was interested in these ideas. He read about them. He read about mesmerism. He read about uh, all kinds of ideas and he included them in his fiction. And this is still something that that occultists, particular theosophists, claim today that Bulwer Lytton was an occultist. And everyone believed he was. Even the uh, SRIA, um, the uh, Societist let me make sure I'm saying this right Rosicrucia Rosicruciana in Anglica, or the Rosicrucian Society of england claimed that bulwark Lytton was their patron and when he found out about this he demanded they remove his name because he did not have anything to do with that with freemasonry or occultism uh, and there's claims that he was in contact with the occultist eliphas uh, levy that he participated in an evocation so there's lots of all of this lore around him um But for the most part, it's not provable in any way, shape or form. But uh, the claims still persist. And Blavatsky was one who believed it. Uh, She was a Russian immigrant. Uh, She was born in what is now the Ukraine. Uh, She uh, was married in her teens, uh, but quickly left her husband and traveled the world. Uh, The details of this is uh, unclear at times. Uh, One of the things we can see in the biographies of these people is is that they uh, made up fictitious histories. So we can't really take uh, everything they say uh, as fact. Everything's got to be taken with a grain of salt and then uh, verified. And that's hard to do a lot. So we have her showing up in America – at the, um, the height of American spiritualism in the 1870s. And already there's issues going on where people are being caught of fraud. Mediums are uh, taking advantage of spiritualist believers. There's lots of um, anti-spiritualist uh, activities uh, within the church, calling it demonic. And you also have people uh, like what Houdini would do later of using their knowledge of – Uh, stage magic to disprove mediums. So you have this very chaotic and and, um, interesting uh, mixture within America and Blavatsky shows up and meets this uh, person named um, Henry Steele Olcott who's an American lawyer who was in the Civil War, was actually part of the commission um, looking and investigating the assassination of Lincoln. He... Uh, at this point is a lawyer and is interested in spiritualism and therefore also does some journalism. They meet in a, um, a in New York um, at a place where there's uh, spiritualist activity going on. Um, Blavatsky caused some kind of stir there because she's a, a medium and has uh, some kind of uh, esoteric powers. And therefore, she starts to denounce spiritualism. And from this meeting... They start working together and start developing an alternative understanding of spiritualist phenomenon based on claims of a contact of this uh, brotherhood from uh, the the masters and that the ancient wisdom teaches that these aren't actually ghosts, that they're the um, astral remnants of people who have uh, their souls have moved on, but they're other they claim the body is divided into the physical and the soul and there's this middle part, the astral body and those it's these astral shells or, um, that are remnants of people that mediums are talking to and therefore they never really have access to truth and this has always been a big claim like how do these spirits know things? How, you know and how accurate are the, the things that they say and quite frequently they're inaccurate. Um, And she says, well, that's because they don't know anything more than the person knew when they died, because there's just the astral remnants of that person. And, you know, over time, these astral remnants dissipate and dissolve. And so that the actual person, the soul, has moved on and uh, and reincarnated or will reincarnate. And so we start seeing um, the introduction of Eastern ideas. Um, Early in theosophy, Um, they do move their headquarters from New York to India. And in doing so, you start to see an ever increasing um, introduction of Hinduism and Buddhism. And they actually start calling what they teach occultism and also the term esoteric Buddhism.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? that's our whole show so join us every wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on instagram tiktok and twitter at chinwag pod and Waggon. it's interesting because they're gonna they're gonna tack on a lot of things from a variety of disciplines and and and, uh and approaches to this sort of knowledge right Uh, yes
1: one of the things we should always keep in mind though is Everything that they're appropriating, and I use that word appropriating as in um, kind of the hybridity that uh, that was talked about previously, um, and 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 Joe talked about this instead of um, instead of syncretism, syncretism, right, right? right? Because because they're they're willfully doing this Syn- syncretism kind of seems very passive it just kind of happens but this is an active uh participation in the construction of this tradition that theosophists are doing they're looking at their environment they're seeing the texts and the ideas they're interacting with practitioners of these traditions and they're adopting them but they're always adopting them through an orientalist lens they're always filtering the ideas of reincarnation, or uh, Buddhist ideas of compassion, or the the Bhagavad Gita—all of these are always going through this Western Orientalist lens and being combined with Western notions of uh, esoteric ideas. So there's there's nothing pure in this uh, um, in this hybridization that is uh, theosophy. It's always this Western Eastern amalgam. So, and I, so they start promoting it.
0: A, a quick question. This, this seems to be a recurring theme in um, uh, a lot of these uh, spiritualists. I shouldn't say spiritualist, um I don't know what the right word is. I don't mean spiritualism with a capital S. But this idea of, of tapping into these uh, sort of paranormal contact uh, concepts, Th- there is, you've got this, you've got Orientalism, and then I see uh in, in America with spiritualists, there's a lot of uh of sort of appeals to Native American wisdom. And then I, I see in some instances there's this appeal to ancient Egyptian uh spiritual uh concepts. So um it seems like tapping into ancient wisdom from a variety of of, of histories and disciplines, whether they're accurately depicted or not, seems to be a common factor in these things. Is 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 that accurate?
1: No, it is, because legitimacy, in many ways, is built on longevity. Ah. So if an idea has continued throughout time, then it has legitimacy. And this is really interesting in the age of science, because science is actually giving the opposite message. So you have an internal conflict here, and we see it in our society today. We do to want things to be old, to look at it and say, oh, this thing's lasted, this has a legitimacy, but we're always interested in the new. I mean, who who wants, you know, an iPhone from 10 years ago? Right. Nobody <laughs> wants that old technology. But if you're going to publish uh, or if you're going to participate in a religion or some kind of institution or buy from a, a store, you want to know that they've been around a long time. Right. So you see lots of stores that have established and then the date in it. That's marketing, that's to appeal to this notion of that we want something that's old, that's been around, that is producing a quality product or is true and therefore people continue to believe it, <laughs> like these old religions. And yet we have this tendency to want the new stuff too, right? So this is, people uh, criticize Scientology a lot, but Scientology is is caught in this game too, right? They want to say that these are these old ideas carried forward by hubbard uh but they want to appeal to the new and the new techniques and and so they're playing that game too but people ding them for being new right it can't be true because it's new the old religions are true because they're old so scientology gets it both ways right it's tricky Yeah.
0: yeah it
1: is and this is why these groups will always appeal to this old perennial wisdom And, you know, there's often debates on where did it start with? Did it start with Moses or did it start with Zoroaster or did it start with Plato or or Hermes? And also, again, this kind of um, Masonic influence and Orientalist influence, the East is where humanity came from, and therefore that's where the original wisdom is, right? At first, the East is in Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and this is where Hermes is supposedly from. Yes, Hermes Trismegistus. But the problem with that is by the time you get to the 19th century, there's nothing mysterious about Egypt, right? Europeans have been there now for centuries. They're already examining all the temples. They've seen all the artwork. Once the Rosetta Stone is discovered, they're even able to start reading the hieroglyphics. So the mystery of what they say is diminishing quickly. You're finding all of these tombs. The tombs have either uh, been robbed or the colonialists robbed them. And so you end up getting the normalization, you might say, of Egypt. And so then there's looks to further east. Well, you can't look at India because India again has been colonized by the UK. You could look to China and Japan, but though, and they do have a mysterious ethos, but they're also, in from a European understanding, just incomprehensible. Like they, th- at this point, the the dis- the distance between East and West for those nations is still something that's a struggle for Europe. But there is this one place, this one in-between place that is remote, inaccessible, mysterious, but approachable. And that's Tibet. Ah,
0: this is making and more so, sense. Yeah, okay.
1: So this is why Tibet and, and the, the Himalayan mountains, and I say Himalayan instead Himalayan because that's actually how it should be pronounced. But sure, uh, sure. the mountains are inaccessible. Europeans aren't there. Britain did not colonize Tibet. Instead, Britain just didn't think it was worth it, and therefore just has trade deals. It's inaccessible, and it's Eastern. And so it becomes where the masters reside. And an important point about that is the masters are real people. These are not some ethereal beings. They're just real people who are spiritually advanced. And this is the same thing that's going to be at the basis of the claims of the Golden Dawn. They're going to talk about being in connection with a great white brotherhood. But that great white brotherhood is not some ascendant group of spiritual beings. They're real people in the world. And so when the Golden Dawn, which arises later, this group is led by people who were coming out of theosophy, associated with theosophy, associated with Freemasonry. And in England, where it was just a little more practical. And whereas all of this theoretical occultisms happening throughout Europe and in British colonial possessions, in England itself, you have this group of fringe masons and theosophists who actually want to practice. And they've appealed a long time to the leadership of theosophy to teach them to do practical occultism, and they won't. And... We could argue on why they won't do it. They claim it's not safe or that you have to be a student of the masters, that you have to be morally and spiritually clean or even celibate or a virgin or all of these claims are made. But the the long and short is that they're not teaching practical occultism. And so you get these people, Mathers and a guy named Westcott and some others who get together and they make a practical occult organization called the Golden Dawn. And they base it on magical manuscripts that are in the British library and a claim of legitimacy from a letter that is gives them um, permission to practice the rites and initiations they claim from a person in Germany. And so you get the rise of the Golden Dawn. And it's very much in response to theosophy and its Theoretical occultism and its refusal to do practical occultism. And so this group does Egyptian rites. They do ceremonial magic, a kind of modified initiatory system based on Rosicrucianism, Kabbalah, astrology. They basically take all of these different kinds of esoteric systems and synthesize them and they start presenting them as magical practice. And it flourishes. There's a tremendous amount of interest and hundreds and hundreds of people join these organizations. I mean, the Golden Dawn and all the different lodges. I was say, um, yeah, it,
0: that's one of the big questions I, I was curious about was, wh- so unfortunately, because of uh, my vast and limitless ignorance, I, I mostly know these organizations from references and other, you know, uh fringe books, I say fringe, but you know what I mean? I just, these, the books on these sort of paranormal topics, they, they come up uh, in, in conspiracy theories uh, from a historical context and, and a lot of different ways. But I, what I don't see a lot of is what were they actually doing? How widespread were they, you know, could, was it like masonry where you could go see a golden dawn lodge in any particularly big town or, or, you know, how, how hidden were they? How public were they?
1: They were not public. Okay. So you had to know somebody to be invited into it. So it was definitely a word-of-mouth network. Okay. Uh, And then they filtered people. in. But like Freemasonry, you had to have sponsors. Uh, Early Theosophy was the same way. It was a lot more public. Theosophy had open meetings. But to be a member of Theosophy, you had to have two sponsors. And so uh, Early Theosophy also had an initiatory system that then— or degree system that it uh, later abandoned. Uh, so the, this Masonic influence, as we talked about in the previous episode, is is very present uh, and s- much more present in the Golden Dawn to the point where you have an inner and an outer order. And then you have this initiatory system based on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life of the Ten Sephira and um, moving up the Tree of Life and going from the inner order, I mean, the outer order to the inner order. And uh, it's a very complex system. Um, and, but all of this is fully documented. The lists of membership are, are published. I mean, the, the, the books are out there that give all of this information. It gives the rites that they were doing, the ritual practices, the magical practices of astral travel and meditation on the, uh, right. It's uh, on, on tarot cards and rising on the planes. Like it's, it's all out there. If people want to read about it, it, it's all out there. And so are the secret teachings of, of the, um, of the esoteric section of the Theosophical Society. It's all been published. Everything that uh, Blavatsky sent out, and there were three little pamphlets that she sent out to members of the esoteric section. That's all been published. And then she even had an inner group of 12 um, devoted uh, disciples, six men, six women. This was called the inner group. That's all published too. I mean, all of this information is out there. What they talked about, the knowledge that they transferred, it's all out there. You can read it, but the point is, reading it isn't the same as doing it. And that's what made these participatory groups different. The Golden Dawn, the OTO, their stuff's in print, but that's not the same as doing it. And when you're doing it, you got to get the groups together, you got to organize them, and then you have to participate in the rituals. And it's an experiential thing. Right. If, even when you're doing ceremonial magic, you could sit there and read the ceremony, but the magic doesn't work according to participants unless you do it.
0: Yeah, that, so you, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, and, and these things are, are some. Some of these are being appropriated from uh, Eastern culture, and some of them are being, I assume, created from thin air. I, I um, some of the
1: um, the. Theosophy very much is this uh, 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 Orientalist appropriation of Eastern. The Golden Dawn, in many ways, was responding to that, saying, no, we reject the Eastern stuff. But then they, at that point, they considered Egyptian Western. So they base everything in a lot of the imagery on Egyptian uh, religious tradition. So they use a lot of references to Egyptian gods and... Um, clothing and head, uh, gear and so forth that look like Egyptian, uh, pharaohs. And, um, they use a lot of the artwork, uh, of the gods and hieroglyphics, things like that within their temples.
0: What sort of, what sort of things were uh, people trying to accomplish with these, uh, these rituals and rites? Like, were they getting in touch with... Uh, intelligences, are are they trying to get life goals met, or a, a mixture of those sort of things? Or I,
1: I think you could get, break it down into the the two main areas in which everybody who participates in a practical sense in occultism or esotericism through time, either higher knowledge or practical benefits in this lifetime, and and that's the same thing for. Um, for the golden dawn and theosophy so for this higher knowledge or gnosis to use uh, the common term they're looking for some transcendent knowledge understanding of the universe and then on the practical level it could be anything from getting a job to um knowing what the future is to you know at its most root level you know, am I going to win this court case or am I uh you know, is she going to come back to me or how am I going to find a job? Yeah. Very it's interesting. pretty much the same. Yeah. I mean, when you look if you look at like across the the board, like the goetic system of magic and invoking demons, what do you invoke them for? To either do something for you or to tell you something. If you go in even like the hoodoo voodoo shops of of today, you go in and you buy oils or sprays or soaps or powders to what, you know, to win a court case, to bring in some money, to get a job, to bring your lover back. You know These are the concerns of human beings. If you go back to the cunning folk who, who made talismans and sold them um, within their community, they're making talismans to, you know, make your cow healthy, to get rid of a curse, to... Uh, keep you safe while you're plowing so that you don't get injured uh, and that you'll be able to, to harvest your crop, uh, that you'll get a good price for your, your grain or whatever. I mean, these are very practical appeals to the supernatural um, because so much of our lives are out of our control. We're looking for some means to give us better odds.
0: Exactly. So so I, I gather that because of these sort of splits that are going on, that, that there must have been uh, a lot of the same sort of thing we see in, in modern groups where you get people together, they have a common goal, but it just can't last. Like the, the personalities can't sort of keep it together and you get split after split after split.
1: Yes. That's, uh, that's across the board. All of these organizations um, encountered schism, uh, dissent, people leaving. Uh, this was very common at at points where an established leader either dies or leaves the organization, and then there's the difficulties of choosing the next leader, um, or uh, a split in the organization um, because somebody's a problem, um, and how that person is responded to can cause the organization to split. And then sometimes there's uh, ideological uh, basis, and this is. Again, we could see that the underlying um, foundation of Protestantism in all of this, whereas Protestantism is not about what you do, it's what you think and what you believe. And therefore, if there is a difference in belief, a fundamental difference in belief, the group will schism. Um, Those same kind of tendencies are also in theosophy, Golden Dawn, OTO, etc.,
0: yeah, we talked a little bit about that in our, uh, our previous episode about the orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. Uh, yes. And, and uh, that was new to me, but it, it sort of nicely encapsulated that, that idea uh, of the uh, what you do versus what you believe. I find that really interesting because, um, it, you know, it, it, as – limited and and not a religious studies person myself i I sort of like i'm limited to what i know from my upbringing and uh and when i read about other groups i see it's well as far as establishing in group and out group it's it's there's sort of these tenets. uh you know some religions where you don't eat pork and you know there's religions where you don't uh do certain things and there's other religions where you do certain things and you wear certain things and uh Regardless of whether there is a uh, a spiritual or a magical uh, result from those things, it also really uh, readily shows you in-group, out-group, social uh, positions. So you could tell who's in your group and who's outside of your group. Or you could at least look at it as a form of signaling uh, for that sort of thing. And that could be virtue signaling or it could actually be just membership signaling. I, it's it's all really interesting. I think the it's part of that whole... Uh, all the vagaries of what it means to be human, right? <laughs> it,
1: it is, but I, I think it also helps us understand religion greater. Uh, when you ask most people what is religion, there's a tendency for most to say, oh, it's what you believe. But those beliefs, uh, well, first of all, the appeal to belief is that orthodoxy, right? It's an appeal to are you right with your doctrine or are you out of alignment? Um, versus the orthopraxies, are you doing the right practices? And we could see, you know, if I was to contrast Protestantism and Catholicism in that sense, uh, a lot of Protestantism focuses on what you're believing. If you believe this about Jesus, or if you believe this about God, and uh, the relationship of, of the Church, uh, the Catholic Church is is wrong because you can— contact god or yourself and i mean ultimately if you follow that out to its logical conclusion you get secularism right because you don't if it's all about what you believe then you don't even need to go to church then you don't even need the bible because it's all just what you believe and what i believe is to be a good person so there you go whereas in orthopraxy there's no interrogation of what you believe it's what you do so are you going to to confession? Are you taking communion? Are you doing the, the celebrations of uh, the various feasts? So those kinds of things indicate your inclusion. There's no question, well, but do you believe abortion is bad, right? Lots of Catholics think the church is wrong about its teachings about abortion or, the chur, uh, or, or marriage, um, divorce, things like that. But they're still Catholic because they're they're still participating in those uh, practices. So we could see that is as a basis. Whereas in things like Theosophy, um, the Golden Dawn, you you have less of that orthopraxy. But there are instances we can point to where orthodoxy becomes important. What are you? preaching what kind of ideas. So for instance when Alan Bennett was interested in eastern religion, this was something Mathers rejected. And so uh there's an incident where uh Bennett is uh, this is a, according to Crowley, um Bennett is chanting Shiva's name and and Mathers becomes so upset that he tells him to stop and he points a gun at him. So you can get to a point where like the beliefs cause these kinds of schisms. But then it also can just come down to straight up personalities. Um, in the case of Crowley and the Golden Dawn, he was a proficient um, practitioner. Um, he was down with the ideas, uh, but he was a troublemaker and he sided with, and Mather sided with him and the members of the lodge were against him. And ultimately that caused a schism. So sometimes it's belief, sometimes it's practice and sometimes it's just personality. And in the case of Crowley, his ideas uh, and his personality uh, being the kind of, uh, you might say when he was young, he was rambunctious and um, kind of a, a, a pain to some people. Uh, and that caused the schism in, in the breakdown of the Golden Dawn. Monster Dog.
0: You've been listening to an interview with John L. Crow about the history of magic and theosophy. I'm Blake Smith, and this is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening.
1: at luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington, and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void
0: prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.